Hello! Welcome to the IP Lasagna episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. And Emily, how excited are you about this week's show? I am so excited. It's all coming back to me. Everything I thought I forgot about IP, I remembered. (laughs) We have the one and only Alexandra Roberts, a.k.a. Lex Lanham on Twitter. Alex, introduce yourself. Who are you? I am an intellectual property and trademark law professor at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. You are everyone's favorite IP expert. You are going to talk to us about so many amazing bits and pieces of trademarks. We're going to talk about social media. We're going to talk about rights of publicity. We're going to talk about brands. We're going to talk about counterfeits. We're going to talk about parodies. We're going to talk about mischief. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment about Felix the Cat and whether I can use it as my Twitter avatar. It's so much fun. Honestly, this is the best show about IP law you will listen to all month. I can guarantee it. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The one thing that Emily loves more than anything else on this show is when I remind everyone that she used to work at IP Law and Business Magazine. She used to run it, indeed. I was the executive editor. So this is your show, Emily. I'm turning the reins over to you for this one. So mad at you. Okay. (laughs) Well, yes. I was on the intellectual property beat from 2001 to 2006. And then I really 
dropped off. I was doing the reading, preparing for this episode, and I remembered a trademark conference I went to in Toronto. And then I was like, what even was a trademark conference? Like, I couldn't conceive of how that was anything. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's really my favorite, actually. I can't think of anything more fun than a trademark really? conference. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. People go crazy. Those IP lawyers. So, Alex, Alex you, you sent us a thing on um, – you, you gave us some like reading because you're a good university professor. One of the pieces of reading you sent us included the sentence, the Ninth Circuit cited Hote Diggity Dog in support of its decision. And now I just love IP law because it's like one of my favorite sentences of all time. The main reason I love IP law is because I follow you on Twitter. You're a must follow on Twitter. You're at Lex Lanham, which is what? reading the Lanham Act? Is that what it means? Tell us what the Lanham Act is. Sure. The Lanham Act is the Federal Trademark Act, and it covers trademark registration and trademark infringement and dilution and even false advertising, passing off, things like that. So everything that I study is in this federal statute. Is it huge? No, it's not huge at all. But it's this like one, one relatively not huge act, which has spawned an entire industry, basically. Exactly. So you get many hundreds or thousands of cases applying and interpreting it. And people get a con- trademark confused with copyright, but trademark and copyright are not the same. As that is Alex correct. Explain to us. <laughs> and I think this is a distinction people often mess up. Sure. Okay. Um, so trademarks are brand names. They protect the use of a name or a logo or trade dress or something like that in connection with the sale of um, goods or services in commerce, right? Copyright is something that protects expressive works. So original works of authorship fixed in a tangible medium. So if you're thinking about, you know, a painting, a film, a television show, the actual content of it, then you're thinking about copyright. And if you're thinking about the brand name or the logo or something like that, then you're thinking about trademark law. They are not synonymous and they are not at all interchangeable, although um, often they intersect. And right of publicity is like another thing entirely, which is neither of those two things? That's right. Um, right of publicity is a way to protect some the use of somebody's name, image, or likeness Um the, the commercial use, right? So if you're a celebrity or even if you're a regular person and your face gets used in an advertisement or your name gets used or something like that, um, then you might have a right of publicity cause of action. That's actually covered by state law. So almost every state has either a statute, not almost every, but more than half of states have um, either a statute or common law protection or both for right of publicity. But if someone, if someone put my photograph in a ad on twitter say and started using it to sell cat food then i could probably sue that person in many states absolutely and that's going to be a place also where a couple of these things intersect and overlap right because you might have a right of publicity claim based on the use of your image in connection with commercial advertising and you might also have a copyright claim or the owner of the photo that they're using might have a copyright claim And what's interesting to me about the difference between trademark and copyright, or one of the interesting things, is that trademarks are forever if you keep using them and you keep them alive. You have to kind of like tend to it like a little fire, but then it could be be a flame in perpetuity, whereas the copyright, you have it, you don't have to tend to it, it's yours, but ultimately 
it will expire. Although the the time it takes to expire is past your lifetime and keeps getting extended by big corporations. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then right of publicity, it depends on the state. So some state protections extend past death. Some states have posthumous protection for like 100 years. Some have it for more like 20 years. And some states say, no, this is something that you can protect while you're alive. And when you're dead, others can go ahead and, and use your name or image. Yeah, we were just we were just talking on Twitter about this, whether Frida Kahlo, who is dead, has a right to publicity. And it looks like she doesn't in Mexico, but she does in California. And her photograph was being used by our, our favorite alternative investment platform, Masterworks, in one of their ads on Twitter. And I'm like, are they allowed to do this? And it kind of seemed like probably not, but they were doing it anyway. Um, but this is something which is big on Twitter. Like Twitter is just the world's biggest trademark and copyright infringement machine. Like everything you see on Twitter is like people are tweeting out photographs that they don't have rights to. They're using trademarks they don't have rights to. And that seems to be fine. Like, is that ha damaging anyone? It, it kind of depends who's the speaker, who's the user, right? So a lot of the kinds of uses that you're thinking about are going to be fair uses. We have fair use doctrines in all three of those areas. Um, and when you are just a regular person with a regular sized following, um, you can always reference trademarks, for example. That's always going to be a fair use to say, I got new Nike shoes, I'm so excited about them, stuff like that. I think there's some interesting copyright questions around fair use when we see use on social media, whether something is transformative, what you're kind of adding to it. But the rules are very different when you are a commercial entity and what when what you're doing looks more like advertising. Or when it's like specifically an ad, a promoted tweet, then presumably the bar is much lower, I guess, higher. I can't, I'm not quite sure which way around it would be, but but you're, you're much more likely to be infringing that way because that is a an explicitly commercial activity that you're engaging in. That's right. But if you are a brand with millions of followers, whether you label something an ad and whether it gets becomes a promoted tweet or whether you just kind of push it out to your millions of followers, I don't think makes a huge difference on a, from an infringement perspective. I thought there was an interesting case of where this was blurry recently. Um, the comedian Leslie Jones, she tweets out like videos of herself watching the Olympics, and she did it during the election watching Steve Kornacki. <laughs> and it, it's always hilarious and funny. Um, and I guess she was doing this with the Olympics, and NBC was upset about it and, and told her to stop, which I thought was just, I mean, I guess it's their right to tell her to stop, but was dumb because she is <laughs> making the Olympics interesting, which NBC would benefit, only benefit from. So that seemed like, like it seems like a lot of the time, the issues that arise are because companies are overly protective of their IP, t IP and their brands, and sometimes they overstep the protection where it could be to their benefit. Yeah, I have a question about that, which is uh, when when this kind of thing happens, and you see like the New York Times do it a lot when people like quote New York Times headlines and stuff. There's something which you hear, which is basically. It's not you. We don't particularly mind you doing this. But if we just allowed people to do this, then that would set a precedent. And then if someone did something that actually did damage us or that we didn't want them to do, it would be harder for us to enforce it. Is that true? That's not particularly true, at least from a trademark perspective. So the, the kind of duty to police gets really overblown when companies make that argument. You know, we have to enforce this consistently or else we'll lose it. We won't be able to enforce it. 
that is typically a justification for unnecessary over-enforcement or bullying. So you don't lose trademark rights unless you really have stepped away and are doing absolutely nothing to control use by licensees or to police lots of really infringing, harmful uses. What about like uh, trademarks like Kleenex or Google or Xerox, things that become like generic in the in the language. Like what can a company do about that? Do they still have their trademark right? Yeah. So what matters with genericide is really what consumers understand. And it's not how consumers use the term. So we could survey a bunch of people and they could all say, yeah, I use Kleenex, but what but I know it to be a brand. I use Kleenex to refer to puffs or any brand of tissues that I'm using, but I know that Kleenex is a trademark and it, um, when it's used, it means that the product comes from one particular company. So we wouldn't have genericide in a case like that. Um, what companies do when they're concerned about losing their marks to genericide is they'll kind of do like a campaign to raise awareness, which can feel really silly, right? So um, we've seen Xerox do these and Nintendo and Tater Tots and all kinds of brands have like taken out colorful ads saying, hey, we just want to remind you, we are the only company that can make Tater Tots or that can make Kleenex. And I think sometimes to consumers that feels like, oh, are you policing my language and telling me what to say? But what they're really focused on is we just need you to have that information. We need you to be aware that not all tissues are Kleenex. And as long as we can get that, we can probably hang on to our mark. And that came up in the Google case too, right? Everybody uses Google as a verb, as a noun, as an adjective in every way to mean I looked something up on the internet. But if you ask them, they're like, no, no, Google is a brand. I know. Yeah. So it's both desirable and undesirable kind of thing to happen to but, a brand. But, but also, like, is this part of the, the jurisprudence that, like, if people stop knowing that it's a company and a trademark, like, the judge will go out and sort of take an opinion poll, basically, and say, do you know this? And then if the, if people go, no, nope, I, I didn't know that, then the trademark is lost. Like, what's a good example of actual genericide where, where something became so much a part of the language that it stopped being a trademark? Murphy bed. Uh, singer oh, sewing nice. machines, yeah, shredded wheat. So oh. things that were once marks that no longer function as marks because people use them as like a whole category term. Which again, like you kind of want as a brand, <laughs> as a marketer, like nothing better than like everyone saying, oh, go Google it. Like that's desirable, right? It shows you've saturated the market. You are the name of the thing you make. That's that's not Right, bad. but it's risky. Right. So um, there was a recent case over Comic-Con that was kind of a close call. One we've talked about in my class is Popsicle. So you see Popsicle using like original brand Popsicle. A lot of these marks are right on the margin and we're not going to have cases about them because they don't want to enforce in a way that gets another party to say, actually, your registration should be canceled because your mark has become generic. We're going to prove it with survey data. So those <laughs> mark owners really have to proceed with caution. So is this also why so many brands slap that little TM symbol all over everything? Is that part of just reminding people that their brand is a trademark? Or is there some other reason to do that? Yeah. So the circle R is what you use when you have a registration. And that does, I mean, I think consumers, a lot of consumers know what that means. So that helps send that message. This is a trademark, right? The TM actually just about anybody can use. And it signals like, we think this is our trademark and we're working on getting, making it our trademark and conditioning consumers to understand that this is a source indicator for our brand. So the TM is a little bit less meaningful. 
but but the but both of them serve like in terms of the utility the reason why they appear everywhere is precisely just to protect against genericide there's no other reason to do it to protect against use by others so if a competitor sees something on packaging and says hey that's a great descriptive term for our product can we use that too looks like we can't because this company is using it as a trademark and not just as a descriptive phrase my my favorite example of this was when MasterCard decided to change its logo. It used to be an orange circle and a yellow circle overlapping them with and it said MasterCard underneath it. And then they they decided that this was so universally recognizable they didn't need to use the word MasterCard anymore. And they would just have two circles and it'd be this beautiful, clean, perfect, simple logo. And then it was it was um you know, released into the world. And every time you saw that logo, it had this little buzzing bee to the top right of it saying like registered trademark because they couldn't get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah, I think we see that a lot. So we get a a kind of combo composite mark and then the brand says, hey, let's condition consumers to, to understand like just this really basic representation also indicates that it's a MasterCard product or whatever. So we're working up to being able to use that by itself. So Snickers a couple years ago did a promo where they had the regular packaging, but they put different words instead of Snickers. So the bars didn't say Snickers at all. They said like hangry or whatever, you know, some cutesy terms that were supposed to reference their ad campaign. Um, And I think what that does is like reinforce consumers recognize our trade dress, like our packaging colors and font and things like that even without the word Snickers. So now if somebody else tries to use something really similar, we can go to court and say, look, we don't even need to have the word Snickers on the packaging for consumers to get this. Sometimes companies let these trademarks die and there's a whole business in reviving them. A, there's a business in reviving them. B, this is coming up now because like the Washington football team changed its name. What are they called? Oh, Commanders. The that Commanders. Yeah. So now the question is like, what happens to that trademark? Because not only is it um, not being used and dead, but it's offensive to many people. And and this holds for like the Aunt Jemima trademark and what was it? Uncle Ben's, right? So this is like a whole new issue kind of cropping up now. Do I have that and, right? Yeah. And so like, I guess two questions. Like first is, if I stop using my trademark, then obviously given the whole like use it or lose it thing, it's no longer mine. But then what's the mechanism whereby the legal system works out who gets to have it next? Like, where, And then like, is there a mechanism where the legal system can say, well, actually no one can get it next because it's offensive? Not because it's offensive, but potentially because it still creates a likelihood of confusion with the prior owner, right? So trademark rights in the United States are based on use in commerce. That's how you acquire rights. And when you get a registration, that's just supposed to be kind of a formal recognition of the rights that you get through use. Um, So when somebody stops using a mark for a couple of years and they don't show that they have an intent to resume use in the near future, they don't have a specific excuse like we're waiting for this component to be available or there's an embargo with this country or something like that, then that mark is deemed abandoned. They won't have any more rights and somebody else can come along and start using it and seek protection for it, right? So the question about who gets it is really like whoever gets there first. 
But there's a doctrine called residual goodwill that says, like, listen, this mark is famous in this country, and maybe not everybody knows about the abandonment, but everybody knows this mark. And so if you come along and start using it for something that's related but different, um, you're going to be free riding on that goodwill that exists, and you're potentially going to deceive consumers, right? So if Aunt Jemima if that brand announces we're not using this mark anymore because we've come to understand that it's really problematic. And then a week later, somebody picks it up and starts using it for maple syrup or some other breakfast food, then we can expect a good amount of consumers to think that it still comes from the old brand, right? But then the question is, who's going to stop them? Because it might not be the USPTO. The USPTO might say, well, nobody else currently has trademark rights, so you can have them. So Most of the case law comes from the prior owner suing for infringement based on those rights that come from residual goodwill. But if you're a mark owner who's like, just announced to the world, we are stepping away from this mark, we know it to be harmful, then it feels like kind of um, tricky to enforce those rights. So I think we've seen brands do a couple different things, like the um, Cleveland Indians, they said they weren't going to use Chief Wahoo anymore, um, that mascot based on some harmful stereotypes on the uniforms, but they were kind of low-key still using it for merchandise, right? Um, and Aunt Jemima's, I think, is still using in some other countries or using on the back of the products. And then Uncle Ben's, they changed it to Ben's Original, which is still similar enough that they can probably enforce those rights. So they're kind of, we're seeing some ways that those who are stepping away from a mark are still trying to hang on to some rights. One thing that was interesting to me in doing the reading, catching up from 2005, was the Washington football team name because when I was covering IP, there was a, a lawsuit over the trademark because native, some Native American groups said you can't trademark something offensive, which I guess is in the Lanham Act. Um, but when I was reading last night was that that suit went away because of some other case where they said, oh, yeah, you can actually – trademark things that are offensive. So can you, you can trademark things that are offensive now? Absolutely. So the Lanham Act used to contain a bar on registration of offensive or scandalous or marks that disparage a particular group. And so for a long time, like, you know, the band Butthole Surfers, they didn't have a registration for their (laughs) trademark, even though that's a pretty well-known mark, right? Um, so in, in a pair of cases, the Supreme Court overturned that bar on registration, essentially based on the first amendment based on the idea that this is speech in addition to being commercial. And um, we can't regulate that speech in these kind of specific ways that we've been doing. That's an anti-cancel culture ruling. I feel like people don't know that. <laughs> this is amazing. This went all the way to the Supreme Court. Like who, which, which mark was being litigated in front of SCOTUS? Yeah, so the first one was The Slants, which is a band made up of Asian-American artists. And they, they chose that mark as kind of a reclaiming of a slur, you know, something that was tongue-in-cheek. So it wasn't about um, a bunch of white people using a mark that is disparaging to uh, a group that has been marginalized. Instead, it was members of that marginalized group trying to take it back. And when they applied to register it, the USPTO said, mm, we think that is an offensive term. And here's some... Urban Dictionary entries. And here's one time that Miley Cyrus said something offensive. So the band appealed that. They appealed it all the way up and they were able to succeed on this First Amendment-based argument with some strange bedfellows. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Are you allowed to have a favourite trademark troll? Absolutely. My my favourite trademark troll is UG. UG Australia, um, who are truly evil. And they took these boots, which have been made in Australia for as long as Australia has existed, pretty much, or at least, you know, under colonial times. And... They trademarked them in um, in the United States, and they started putting out this amazing thing, where they said they 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 had this public education campaign, exactly what you were saying, and they said, "Look at where the boots are made. If your UGG Australia boots are made in Australia, then they are a fake. The genuine UGG Australia boots are made in China." <laughs> that is a good troll. It was it was such a troll, and um, but they but they seem to have it. They they seem to have that trademark sewn up, even though they were very late to the UGG boots game. They have been successful so far. I don't know if it's sewn up forever. So genericness is an issue that can keep coming up, right? You can't you weren't able to show that it was generic now, but maybe in ten years you can show that people don't associate that with a particular brand anymore. So, do we want to talk about? trademarking stuff that's kind of art but kind of of commerce um and like how those lines are drawn like you sent us a link to that (laughs) that dog toy story that what what was the dog toy so there there are a lot of cases about dog toys so uh, felix (laughs) referenced one earlier which is the chewy vuitton case and then we have the bad spaniels case with dog toys that look like jack daniels um, there was one about a chew toy that looked like a beer and it was called butt wiper with a dog on it for Budweiser. Um, so they're really like so many of the trademark parody cases actually are dog toy cases. And, and one of the things that a lot of them, if not all of them have in common is one of my favorite things about trademark is this very peculiar and wonderful use of the word dress where it does not mean a frog. It means, what does it mean? What is trade dress? So anything can be eligible for trademark protection, right? So we talk a lot about words and terms and phrases and logos, but it can also be like the look and feel of a product if it's not functional. It can include colors. It can actually include scents. There are some action marks, so like the kind of Fox searchlights. And then trade dress, we're usually talking about like the packaging or the labeling or 
again, some like non-useful features of the product itself that actually serve as a source indicator. So you're not buying it because you love that color and you think it looks pretty, but you're buying it because um, it it's a signifier that this comes from a brand you love. Like Tiffany Blue is I Tiffany think, Blue. Dress. Tiffany Blue has a color, and I feel like Lee and Perrins has that big low oversized label on their Worcester sauce and you just see a big oversized label and you're like, oh, that must be that must be trade dress right there. So okay, so basically Jack Daniels has a very recognizable bottle with a certain fonts and certain colors and all that goes into the trade dress. And then a chew toy company creates what was it again? Bad Spaniels. Bad Spaniels, and this is obviously, I mean, we want them to lose because all Spaniels are very good dogs. And mm. so I don't know where the idea <laughs> Bad Spaniels comes from. But they create this chew toy called Bad Spaniels, and, um, and, it, and it's a chew toy. It is clearly a chew toy. It is clearly not a bottle of whiskey. There, no one will ever mistake it for a bottle of whiskey, but they are sued anyway because why? Okay, good. So two causes of action we see the most. The first is infringement, which would require a likelihood of confusion, right? It would require consumers not to say, oh, I thought this was a real bottle of whiskey that I could drink, but I thought this was a product that was put out by the makers of, or I thought this was done with the permission of the brand owner, right? All of those things could constitute infringement. The other one is dilution, which is just like association of a famous brand with something tawdry, like something to do with sex, drugs, rock and roll, that kind of stuff. Um, or just use of the mark on a totally unrelated set of goods or services that harms the mark owner's goodwill because it creates this second association, right? I thought Tiffany was only for jewelry, but now I see a hot dog stand called Tiffany Hot Dogs. Now when I think of Tiffany, I'm going to think of jewelry and a little bit hot dogs. So that's a separate cause of action. Um, Some scholars are critical of it, but it exists and it is enforced, right? Um, so, but in this case, Jack Daniels sued for infringement and dilution and lost? Right. So we have a nice, robust parody defense that's a kind of part of this umbrella of fair uses, right? So if the mark is parody, and it's got to be a parody of like the brand that it's using and playing on um, or of the consumers or kind of something related to that. It can't be a parody of some third thing, right? But if it's kind of criticism or commentary or joking about this whole area of culture, right? So in the Chewy Vuitton case, it was like, listen, Louis Vuitton is a very high-end brand. The stuff is very expensive. You would never want it to be chewed by a dog. And here you have a maybe $8 dog toy that is fuzzy and that capitalizes on that trade dress so people recognize that it's a reference to the famous brand and yet it's for dogs to chew up, right? So same idea in the Bad Spaniels case. No likelihood of confusion and also this is a kind of use protected by the First Amendment. So this brings us very naturally to mischief, which I think we need to talk about Birkenstocks and um, Jesus shoes and T-shirts with all manner of logos on them. Who are Mischief and why do they love cease and desist letters? <laughs> um, mischief is a kind of hard to characterize, right? So they are a company that's out there doing mischief and they think of it more like performance art. So they don't 
kind of position themselves as a producer of lots of goods and services, but more as a cooperative that that's doing exactly that kind of satire and commentary and parody um, in dialogue with these really powerful brands. So, um, so they get in the news a lot for things like their collaborative with Lil Nas X, which was 666 pairs of Satan shoes that contained real blood. And then they were doing delivering Chick-fil-A chicken, which you can't get on a Sunday. They were delivering it on a Sunday using obviously the Chick-fil-A mark. Um, And then most recently they had this cease and desist Grand Prix, which was like, we're gonna put all of these famous marks on shirts and it's gonna be a race to see who sends us the cease and desist first. So go ahead, Pick the most likely candidate who you think just won't be able to tolerate us using their mark in this way. Buy that shirt. And then if, if the you know, horse you picked wins, then you also get a hat. And you got a hat. I did. I got a shirt and a hat because I picked Subway. <laughs> now, did Subway actually send a C&D or did they just send a snarky tweet? Um, it looked like a snarky C&D as a tweet. It was appended to a tweet, right? But I think it still counts, but it said, LOL. All right, you got us. We'll do it. Um, So it was very kind of self-aware. And then what happens next? I don't know. And was Subway really angry? That's hard to read. So what do these owners of these well-known brands actually do in this position when what they're looking at is like- Nike was really angry, right? Nike was really angry about the shoes. And part of that was about the perception um, and all kind of all over social media, this perception that Satan shoes were coming from Nike. And so Nike must be endorsing Satanism. They must have partnered with Lil Nas X, who I think is amazing, but obviously is also controversial for some people, maybe not the kind of controversy that Nike would want to court. So they came after Mischief and said, you have to stop selling these shoes. And Mischief said, ha we already shipped them all out. You're a little bit late, right? And then I guess in the settlement, you could send back the shoes and you could get your money back or something, but that's... But since since they're trading on eBay for like a hundred times more than they sold for, like no one would ever do that. Right. Uh, But so this was a really interesting case to follow um, because of the arguments, right? So we have something called first sale doctrine, which is like if you buy an iPhone or you buy a book or whatever, um, bad example because the book is more copyright. Uh, first sale. But so if you buy an iPhone or you buy a pair of Nike shoes, you buy a Vuitton bag, you can resell it without trademark infringement, right? So you can have an account on Poshmark and say, here's my gently used Louis Vuitton bag. Here's the price I'm selling it for. And you wouldn't get in trouble for using those marks to describe your stuff. But the question is whether the products have been materially altered such that it would no longer be appropriate to use the trademark with them. And so in this case, Nike said, look, they really customized our shoes in ways that we would never do, including putting human blood inside of them. So you can no longer use our trademark in connection with these shoes, even though they are real Nike shoes. Like what you did, what Mischief did was purchase 666 pairs of Nike shoes and then do some weird stuff to them, right? So first sale doctrine has its limits and you have exceeded them. To which Mischief said, no, 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 we're not selling shoes. We're not in the business of selling sneakers. We are making art, which would get us kind of First Amendment coverage. Well, what was interesting to me also was that um, Mischief had sold Jesus shoes, Jesus Nikes, and Nike didn't really have a problem with that because 
Nike wants to be affiliated with God. It just doesn't want to be affiliated with Satan because of I mean, you know, seriously, don't like, like it's a double standard. <laughs> Total double standard. But the double standard is okay, right? You can choose not to enforce against the Jesus shoes, but then to enforce against the Satan shoes, that's okay. We should mention the Birkenstocks because I think that was a particularly fun one where um, where Mischief bought a bunch of Birkin bags from Hermes oh, yeah. and cut oh, them right. up and <laughs> turned them into – and attached them to like Birkenstock soles and sold them as Birkenstocks. And um, Hermes – did exactly what you often see in these kind of cases, which is growl very loudly in the ca- in the press, about saying like, we are going to come down on this very hard and we are going to sue the living daylights out of them. But then you never heard a, a peep from them ever again. It seems like sending the nasty gram is easy, but actually trying to enforce it is much harder and people tend not to do that so much. Yeah, we we get a lot of cease and desist letters in this area. We get a lot more enforcement by letter or threat over the phone or something like that than we do actual cases, because that that would have been an interesting case to see, right? It would be probably impossible, uh, maybe not impossible, but it would be unlikely to show that consumers were confused or that consumers who were buying Birkenstocks with an E from mischief thought that what they were buying was actually endorsed by Hermes. Also, like, so much of this is is there's, like, this line between marketing and, you know, confusion or whatever, because so much of the things that mischief is doing, like the Jesus shoes, that's good. It's good brand marketing. Like, Hermes wants to be in an article about this stuff because it means they're popular and trendy. And, you know, if, if, if mischief cares enough to like monkey with your brand, your brand is probably very marketable. And there, there are ways that savvy marketers can like surf on that, like Subway tweeting the cease and desist letter. Like it's all kind of, yeah, maybe it's counterculture-esque, but really it's just like another facet of brand marketing that is kind of pretending to be art a little bit. Yeah. And we're seeing consumers care more and more about like brand personality, right? So on the one hand, maybe brand ethics, like, is this a brand that makes ethical choices and goes green and does the right thing? But on the other hand, like, is this a brand that I enjoy engaging with on social media that has a snarky social media manager and seems to have a kind of not too uptight attitude about enforcement? Those things can be all all positive for sentiment about that brand. I want to ask you about my favorite subject, which is counterfeits. And the question of whether, and this is not a legal question, it's but it's, it's I guess, legal adjacent, which is, are counterfeits bad for brands? There is this famous story in the IP world that Dolce & Gabbana, whenever they're asked to cooperate with a case against counterfeiters, of of D&G handbags they always refuse to cooperate because they reckon that this is just free advertising for them and it's and they love people just like coveting the 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 bags and trying and advertising them and showing how desirable they are um but as you, but like at the same time you also have a lot of other brands saying like counterfeits are the worst thing in the world and we lose lots of money from them and they're terrible and we have to enforce you know harsh um, action against them. What's your take on all of that? 
Yeah, I, I think brands can reasonably differ on that. And I, I'll give you the legal response, which is that point of sale confusion, so trademark infringement, is pretty unlikely, right? Because if you're buying a knockoff bag on Canal Street or a fake Rolex, you know from the price what you're buying. You know it's not the real thing almost all the time, right? So there's a theory called post-sale confusion, which is like other people are going to see that fake bag or fake watch and think it's the real thing and think it's low quality, and then maybe they'll be less likely to buy. Or we are a brand that has really made a big deal about exclusivity. You have to get on a waiting list, and there's only this many of this sports car or this handbag. Um, And so if people see it everywhere, if they get on the train and they see 25 high school girls carrying this bag, then that kind of feeling of exclusivity goes away. Um, But those feel less harmful, right? So we could see why a brand might say, ah, we can tolerate this. It's not that big a deal. But on the other hand, um, counterfeits are treated more harshly than just like regular competitors making infringing uses. So there's a a criminal um, statute that you can use to crack down on counterfeits. And then what we see at the back end is like destruction of goods. So that's the most common remedy that brands will ask for is like you not only do you need to stop making this, but you have to set them all on fire or you have to melt them all down into metal, right? So that's that's pretty extreme. As to your question, I think different brands are going to vary on how they understand that and, and how they think it affects their reputation. It seems like there are some cases where it's pretty clear that counterfeiting is bad, like you can't counterfeit someone's like prescription drugs or something. Yeah, and we're in a pandemic where we're seeing um, counterfeit masks and maybe counterfeit COVID tests, and the stakes there feel very different, right? This isn't a handbag that's not as good as the other handbag. This is something that could make people sick. That one really, really fascinates me, though, because what you find a lot of the time with pharmaceuticals and masks is what's known as gray market imports which is they're made they're exactly the same item made in exactly the same factory to exactly the same standards but they aren't imported through the certain channels they come you know like the factory in china that made all of these masks for 3m sent a bunch of them to 3m which got branded as 3m and a true genuine 3m masks and then the same factory made the same masks and um, you know, imported them illegally into the United States. And they're just as good, but they are fakes and they wind up getting destroyed and they're bad for 3M because 3M doesn't want those sold because they want you to buy the real real ones. But a lot I've seen a lot of talk um in the United States about, you know, counterfeit masks, and no one seems to make the distinction between like a bad mask that ju- doesn't do its job versus a good mask that does do its job, but still counts as being a counterfeit because it hasn't gone through the right channels. Yeah. Well, we have regulatory agencies who are um, adding some layers, right? It's not just about the masks and the factory they're made in. It's about the labeling and the packaging and the way in which they're shipped and stored. Um, so some of those gray market goods cases are about that when it's food, when it's shampoo, things like that. Um, there have also been cases about like blue jeans. So it's the same factory, it's the same materials, but they kept, they snuck back into the factory and they made some more and then they could sell them for a profit. And you're thinking, those are probably not very different in quality. Um, yeah, so I think there, there are some tricky cases there. Isn't it so weird how the government just protects the marketing rights of private companies? 
It's crazy, right? It is like, crazy. Trademarks are worth so much money. <laughs> is is it the same as as brand value, or, or not the same as? But like, it, when people talk about the world's most valuable brands, how how much of that is in, sort of inheres in the trademark? And if we lost the trademark protections, how much would brand the, the, that that brand value? Would that be terrible for like a whole bunch of stocks on the stock market? Would they all plunge overnight? Yes, I think it would be terrible. So a lot of that kind of goodwill and reputation is stored in that mark. Companies know about that and they, they try to diversify a little bit. So that's some of the reason we see protection asserted for trade dress and for logos and for those other things that go beyond the word mark, right? So Play-Doh recently applied to register the scent of Play-Doh. And I think some of us speculated, like, maybe that's because Play-Doh is concerned about genericide and they want to make sure they have some other stuff that is protectable and protected because people seem to be calling a lot of things Play-Doh that aren't Play-Doh. It's like IP lasagna, right? to like borrow from Emily Oster. It's like layers of protection for the trademark. It's not just the trademark. It's the trade dress. It's the logo. It's the color. It's the smell, blah, blah, blah. I love that IP lasagna. I usually hear about belt and suspenders, so lasagna sounds a lot more fun. (laughs) (laughs) I think of the most valuable company in the world, Apple, and how much of the value of Apple is just in the value of the mark. And if anyone could slap the Apple name and logo on a piece of electronics, how the value of Apple would fall off a cliff. That's right. And and that's why I think we see those brand owners spending so much, right, to sue, to settle those cases, to buy out others who are making uses of similar stuff, right? Because that value is really tremendous. There was this great Wall Street Journal video about the Apple logo where they analyzed um, TV shows, Ted Lasso specifically, and looked at what actors engaged with the logo on screen and what actors didn't like Apple won't let actors use the logo if they're like bad guys in shows only good guys can use Apple products in shows like the level uh, yeah, of but Alex has that the whole thing on. about this right Apple cannot enforce that it's just it's what? this weird it's what? this weird Hollywood convention what? that you only use an Apple device if you're a good guy but there is no way that is enforceable So it's not enforceable using trademark law, right? So anybody on a show, a show is considered an expressive work. Anybody in a book, anybody in a movie can mention trademarks and use branded goods. And that's usually we think of that as nominative fair use, right? Those are just people making uses. So, but Apple can kind of enforce that preference in other ways, right? It can make friends with the producers and the showrunners. It can say, this is our preference. We'll give you free stuff or we'll make sure not to object and not to make any trouble for you when all of your good characters are using our products. And we just have one condition, right? If you want to be in bed with Apple, if you want to be friends with Apple, just make sure that no bad guys have an iPhone in their hand. And so I think the tendency is typically to go along with that. And as Felix said, you know, outside of trademark law, we see a lot of contracts and licensing in the entertainment industry. So somebody making a movie or making a show might be advised by a lawyer that they can do what they want, but they might still feel more comfortable entering into an agreement. Like, hey, Peloton, we're going to put a Peloton in this show. Um, Is that cool with you? Will you send us one? You know, will you sign this agreement that you're not going to sue us over it? So there's, there's kind of an intersection, I think, of contracts and trademarks. 
So then why in some like TV shows you'll see like it's obviously a can of Coca-Cola, but it'll say like Joca-Cola or whatever. Like they'll black out the brand and stuff. So it sounds like they don't actually have to do that. Or they, they don't just- actually have to, but we get a lot of risk aversion because we have a lot of mark owners that tend to over-enforce and be bullies. And so if you're given the choice between um, – I know I'm allowed to make this use, but I don't want to deal with an angry letter. I don't want to deal with a cease and desist, even if in the end I would win that case versus I'll just make a different decision. And then I know that I can't possibly get in trouble with anyone. Also, movies are made by mark owners, right? Disney is the biggest IP house in the world. And so if Disney is out there making movies, it doesn't want to do anything that would make it seem like anyone can use any old mark anywhere. That's an interesting point. I thought you were just going to say Disney doesn't want to alienate an Apple or a Budweiser or a Nike. One last thing. I could talk to you for hours about this, but the (laughs) one thing I really did want to ask you about is China, which is obviously, you know, the biggest economy in the world and has, it seems to be a place where American trademark and IP law just basically doesn't reach at all. In a globalized world where China is just becoming more and more important, what does that do to the system of global trademarks that we have, you know, lived with for decades? It's like, how does that change? I don't know that it necessarily changes much on the ground in the U.S. So the ability of U.S. mark owners to enforce marks in other countries consistent with treaties and consistent with the kind of different foreign laws um, might not do a lot of harm within the U.S. But they, they're still going to have Customs and Border Patrol. They're still going to have some ability to regulate what's coming in. But what we're seeing is... Um, applications to register marks in the United States with the USPTO have gone through the roof in the last couple of years. And now like 50% of them are coming from China, which is a different challenge, right? So the USPTO is like, what do we do? Do we just hire a lot more people to examine these marks? So they've tried a few things like, let's make everybody work with a US attorney and have a lawyer who can put their name on the application um, who's not a foreign lawyer. Or let's do some additional kind of um, review and double checking with these and making sure they're legitimate and they're not shady. But right now, the net result is that the application process has slowed way down. So you'll see trademark attorneys and companies complaining that you used to be able to get your application reviewed in maybe six to nine months. And now it's a year and a half just for that initial review. So there's a lot more waiting and the system is really getting gummed up. All right. I think we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? I do. The number is 30. That is how many female train drivers a Saudi Arabian company needed and advertised in um, that was recruiting for 30 female drivers. But they received 28,000 applications from Saudi women who were interested in driving trains. And I thought that was very interesting. Saudi Arabia has all kinds of terrible laws preventing women from doing a lot of different things, but um, they've loosened up a little bit and are letting women do more things. So now their labor force participation rate is 33%, which is obviously terrible, but is almost twice what it was a few years ago. My number is 20, which is the number of years that Andres Arango, who was this priest in California, baptized his flock 
by saying, "We baptize you in the name of the Father and of the God, Son I and of the this. Holy Spirit." Oh my and God! It turns out this is the wrong form of words. He should have said. I instead of we, and now every single person he baptized, which is thousands of people, are not baptized. They are not allowed to take communion, and they they cannot achieve salvation. And they need to go back and get rebaptized with someone who says I instead of we. I mean, I'm not. I don't know anything about anything, but that's never stopped me before. But like, <laughs> this is bonkers. Why didn't the Catholic Church just be like? It's fine. Like, he shouldn't have said it, I, we, but it's I, and you're all covered. You're not going to go to hell. Like, definitely say that. <laughs> Felix, this was a good one for our, trademark, for our trademark segment because one little word matters a whole lot sometimes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It can make the difference between going to heaven and going to hell, <laughs> between salvation and whatever the opposite of salvation is. Yeah. Um, Catholic theologians, please write in slate money at slate.com. Explain this. Um, Alex, your, uh, number. My number is 1.7%. So the, a couple of student groups at my school this week hosted this excellent panel on black voices in intellectual property with four black IP lawyers talking about their experiences and their stories. And it turns out that only 1.7% of IP attorneys are black. So uh, probably time for some really important conversations about expanding that pipeline and uh, making sure people are getting good mentorship and finding ways to break in because intellectual property is such a fun field to be in. I mean, that sounds crazy low, even like by by legal standards, right? Like in most areas of law, it will be much higher than that. Like That's right. Why? That's weird, no? It is weird and it's a shame, but um, there are probably some explanations, including what encouragement people are getting in law school and what directions they're getting pointed in based on their undergrad majors and things like that. But we absolutely have work to do because it's a field that will benefit so much from diversity. Alexandra Roberts, thank you for coming on this show. This is so much fun. It was I've been looking forward to this for so long and it totally lived up to all expectations. You're a superstar. My pleasure. And yeah, thank you for listening to Slate Money. And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.